The Northern Baptist Bible College, where I attended college, is in the northern part of Wisconsin, not too far from the northern uh, northern Michigan, the upper peninsula of Michigan. <clears throat> and so we saw snow frequently, and <clears throat> I remember coming back on one of the second semesters in January, and uh, it's snowing every day for at least flurries for 21 days straight. Um, <clears throat> but there were people... Because it was had such an emphasis on missions, there were pe- people there who were attended from all parts of the world, and we had people from uh, South America and Kenya, uh, Af- different parts of Africa, particularly Europe, of course, as well. But I remember we had an individual from uh, Kenya who played on the soccer team, and uh, I don't know that this individual had ever seen snow before. Uh, certainly in Kenya there is Mount Kilimanjaro, one of the high mountains that has snow on it just about all year round. But I don't know that he'd ever, ever, ever had personally seen snow before. So you can imagine somebody who lived in a setting like that, coming to uh, college in northern Wisconsin, maybe had re- read about snow or seen pictures of it, uh, trying to imagine what it was like. And let's imagine that uh, we take this young man and we go on a trip and we take him back here to Maine. We say, we're going to go uh, walk up a mountain here in the middle of winter. One of the ski mountains. And so we walk and we climb up the steep side of the mountain in a January day. And we're having a good time together. We're making footprints in the snow drifts, throwing snowballs, uh, tasting the snow. It's all new to him. And, and, uh, and, and after a couple of hours walking up the mountain here in the ski slopes, uh, the mood changes dramatically. The novelty wears off. The temperature, which may have been just below freezing when we set out, has dropped now. It's later on in the day. And uh, we climb higher. The wind's increasing and it's biting in our faces and anything else exposed. Uh, and, uh, and, and this young man, uh, all the way from Kenya, isn't really totally prepared uh, in the way he's dressed. And he's just kept his hands in his pockets. He doesn't have gl- uh, gloves on. And he's trying to pull his sleeves over his hands. And, and, uh, and we notice he's getting pretty cold. And we're tired, too. We used up energy, and our enthusiasm begins to fall off as well. And then there's mumblings of discontentment. All right, uh, you know, let's, let's quit and, and, and go back now. Um, uh, why, did we, why did we decide to do this in the first place? We could be sitting in the lodge by a cozy fire, <coughs> fire. Uh, eating or reading a nice book, and, uh, and, 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 and that's what we decide to do. That cycle of enthusiastic beginnings, grumblings when things get tough, and then even provision of enough to go on because of God's graciousness, describes more or less the experience of the Israelite people in their journey to the promised land, doesn't it? They had come out of Egypt, out of an extremely uh, destitute situation. God had delivered them, He redeemed them from Egypt, rescued them. And then after a while, and it actually wasn't really that long, they start complaining when things get tough. And they want to go back to Egypt. Now, in the book of Hebrews, there's something of that picture there. Uh, the, the writer of Hebrews talked about Moses and the giving of the law to Israel. And 
Then he brings up the wilderness wanderings, where they are on the verge of the promised land, that God had said, this is a land that you're going to have. And they send out spies to scout out the land, because it wasn't there was work to do in that land once they got there. <clears throat> and twelve spies, and, and ten came back and said, yeah, this land is great. But we're never going to be able to take these guys in it. And two, Joshua and Caleb of the twelve came back and said, the land is great and God's promises are greater and we can take this. We can do this because of what God has said. And the response of the people of Israel was that they're going to side with the majority, the ten people, who said, no, we can't do it, rather than the two who said we could And God punishes them by saying that your generation will not enter the promised land, but you will wander in the desert for 40 years until your generation dies out, and it's your children that are going to go into the promised land. And that is the picture that the writer of Hebrews brings up. He's going to quote in Hebrews chapter uh, 3, verses 7 through 19, really all the way through chapter 4, Psalm chapter 95, where I trust you turn there. <clears throat> the, the Israelites had spent 40 years in the desert. Finally, that generation dies out, and the next one is allowed to go into the promised land. It's a time that the writer of, of, of Psalm 95 calls the great provocation or the great tempting or bitterness, the time of testing, when the people faced the test of whether or not they were going to believe God's truth. They were going to believe God's word. And they put God to the test. So Hebrews is going to want its readers to think of themselves in some ways like that generation. Here you were under Moses' law, and Jesus has come and freed you from Moses' law, and he has given you full and abundant life in him. But now it's getting hard. Is the enthusiasm worn off now? Are you going to head back to where you were under Judaism? Or are you going to come to the crucified, risen Messiah and look into Jesus, the beginning and end of your faith? Are you going to walk through the, 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 the hard times uh, on your way to God's promises, God's future? If you are, you cannot make the mistake that Israelite did. And so he, he quotes from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And um, <clears throat> he's going to come back to it again and again in, the, in chapter 4 as well. So we need to, need to know a little bit about it. So Psalm 95. It's a a psalm that you see is a great call to worship and praise, right? Come, let us sing unto the Lord. And it describes who God is. That Yahweh is a great God. He's the king. He's the rock of our salvation. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the shepherd. We're his sheep. And our response ought to be, verse 6, Oh, come, let us kneel, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. That ought to be our response. But with verse 7 in Psalm 95, the mood changes quickly, doesn't it? This is many centuries after Exodus, that scene that I mentioned, wandering in the wilderness. And the psalmist here is telling the people that 
God had warned the Israelites in the wilderness that as they grumbled and rebelled and put them to the test, they would not be able to enter His rest or find their settled home in the promised land. And the psalmist is using this to say to the people, he's, he was currently writing to the people of Israel at that point in history, that you're facing a choice. This is the God we're to worship. And if He's the God who we're to worship, He's the God worthy of our trust and our following. And you need to worship and serve the same God or risk, run the risk of missing out on the rest which is promised to you in turn. Look in verse 7. <clears throat> the tone changes very quickly when it says, Today, if you'll hear His voice. So there's an urgency to it. There's an urgency to it. Um, and that's the point at which the writer of Hebrews quotes and returns to several times in this passage and later. So now I'd like you to turn back to Hebrews chapter 3. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 3. He tells them that Jesus is greater than Moses. And Jesus is one in whose house we are. Jesus is the Son over the house. Whose house are we, verse 6 says, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. So stay in Jesus. Stay walking in Jesus. And then in verse 7 he says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if ye will hear his voice, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation, the temptation, the testing, the day of testing, the bitterness of Israel, and the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, or tried me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. So here's the, here's the issue here. He is asked that, whose house are you? And verses 1 through 6. And we talked about how the, the, the key there is in verse 6. A, a believer is one who in the difficulties perseveres, doesn't quit, doesn't falter. Verse 6. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing and the hope firm until the end? And so with the other Christians, the writer believes that God has acted once and for all in Jesus Messiah. There is no other way to God. And there is a, there is a, there is a, um, uh, 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 the, the, the reference here to the, to, the, to the people of Israel in Psalm 95 to remind the believers that the writer of Hebrews is writing to, this is close to the first generation of believers after Jesus. Okay, And he is very aware that within every Christian community, there are some who are in danger of just going along with others for the sake of companionship in the crowd, but whose hearts are not really in it. 
They're like the people coming on the snowy mountain walk because they were the friends, but they hadn't really thought about what clothes to bring. Or they hadn't thought about what they would need or what food to bring. And so when things get difficult, their hearts fail them because their hearts are not rooted in the object of their faith, Jesus. And it's just a matter of time before these people realize, I never signed up, really signed up for this in the first place. So that's where he leads us to when he says... Today, if you'll hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. He talks about Israel, how they erred in their hearts. And then in verses 12 through 14, he's going to bring it home and say, What about you? What about you? So here's the issue that the writer of Hebrews is concerned about. Will you continue to follow and trust Jesus yourself? Will you continue? Or will you be content with what he warns about in chapter 2, verse 4, of drifting? Drifting away. Will your initial belief fade away to a memory and your hope dissolve because it wasn't real? Or is it going to continue? Do you have thoughts of maybe we should have never come? Maybe this mountain peak, this mountain doesn't have a peak, doesn't have a top. Maybe it just keeps on going forever. So he brings up Israel's past there as an example to learn from. So here's what we need to learn about this morning. How do we keep going? How does the believer keep going? How do they not quit? And the very first point is we've got to learn from Israel's test. We've got to learn from Israel. We've got to learn what what, what Israel uh, failed to do. We've got to heed a warning from that. Now, what do we need to learn from Israel's test? Well, look in verse 7 to 9. Very key point, verse 7. Quoting the psalm, he says, Wherefore, as the Holy Spirit saith, that's an important uh, 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 truth, a side note here for the, the Word of God being inspired by God's Holy Spirit. He says, the psalmist that David wrote this psalm, but he said the Holy Spirit said this. Important. But he says, Today, if you will what? Hear His voice. Hear His voice. Don't harden your hearts. Now, there's an important truth here because what he's trying to show us here is something that's going to be applicable to the right to the audience he's writing to, that the test of Israel's faith was how they responded to God's word. It's not like God just uh, uh, told Israel, um, you just let them loose and says, you know, just find yourself. He gave them specific promises. He says, I will give you this promised land. You will overcome it. You will overtake it. But their response was a hard heart. A hard heart. So we need to learn from Israel's test here because the test of Israel's faith was how they responded to God's word. Folks, every time the word of God is open to you or you read it, it is a test of your faith. Am I going to believe it? Because I don't care what you say about if you believe the Bible or not, the test of whether you believe it or not is if you obey it, right? That's what James says. So the test of Israel's faith was how they responded to God's word. How they responded to God's word. Now, how did they respond? Verse 8, they hardened their hearts. Verse 9, they tempted God. They proved God, and that's not a good sense. They, they, they tested Him. 
verse 10. What was God's grade on the test? God graded their test with what? An angry prohibition. He says, you cannot enter the rest. Uh, verse 10, Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swear, I promised in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Does God take this seriously? Learn from Israel's test. How do we persevere on the other side of it here? <clears throat> the positive sign. The positive part of it. Engage the weapons against faithlessness to continue in faith. Look at verse 12. Here's where he punches it home. He says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, why would he say that? Because that was exactly what described Israel. Hard hearts, unbelief, Departing from the living God. Anytime we don't believe God's word, what we're saying is, I know better. And God says, no man can serve two masters. You can't have your way and my way. I can't be pulled both ways. I have to choose one or the other. And so he says, when you choose unbelief, when you choose to not exercise your faith in action of what God has said, you're departing from the living God. Departing from the living God. And by the way, that word departing here is a, is a heavier word than, uh, than, than what we might think. It's the word where we get apostasy. Apostasy. And departing in this sense is not somebody who's, who, who veers off course here and God corrects them and through faith and repentance return back on the course. This is a, this is a, a departing, a falling away, never to return. Chapter 6 talks about here. Falling away is, 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 a, is, a, is a never to return kind of falling away. And he says, take heed. Take heed. So how do we engage the weapons against the faithlessness that Israel exhibited to continue in faith? The very first point is this. Have a humble, broken, contrite, transparent, examined heart. Where do you stand personally before God? Why, do we, why, why, why is this the point here? Well, look at verse 12. Take heed. Take heed, brethren. What? Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Were you in it for the enthusiasm at the beginning, or are you in it to the end? Uh, was it an emotional decision? Or was it a decision that may have had emotion accompanying it, but was rooted in real, genuine faith? How many have ever had buyer's remorse? It looks so good, right? It promised so much. It was only 1995 plus shipping and handling, right? And then you get it. And you're like, why? Didn't you? I want to tell you. That the promise of Christ is not 1995 and shipping and handling. It always delivers if your faith is really in it. It always delivers. Jesus Christ is something that we can't have buyer's remorse about. And that's what was wrong with these people. The writer of Hebrews says there's people among your group that are having buyer's remorse. And they can't. They've got to press on in the faith. There is a promise 
There is a hope at the end, an eternal hope. So one of the weapons against buyer's remorse, so to speak, against a lack of faith, against a hard heart, against departing from the living God, is take a look at the inside. Take a look at the inside. Do, am I broken before God? A hardened heart isn't a broken heart. It's a heart that resists brokenness, right? It's not a humble heart. It's a, it's a, it's a proud heart. Uh, it, it's not an examined heart. It's a who cares heart, right? But a broken, contrite heart has the right response to God's word. Do our hearts have the right response to God's word? And when they don't, that should be a flashing yellow sign for you. Whoa, whoa. Repentance. Belief. Secondly, look in verse 13. Not only an examination of your own heart, but verse 13 the acceptance of others, exhortation and encouragement. He says, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, while there is still time, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You see, it's not enough to just have a humble and transparent examined heart on your own here. You know why? Because we all got blind spots. You and I all got blind spots. And that's why we need the body of Christ to tell us, hey, have you thought about this? You and I all have blind spots. We need to have the exhortation, the encouragement of others. Go to chapter 10 with me, because this repeats up, repeats again. <clears throat> One of the reasons we are to gather together as a church family, as believers, is because of what he says... And verse 23 of chapter 10. Let us hold fast. Again, the idea of persevering in the faith. The profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promise. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. But, what? Exhorting one another and so much more, so much the more as you see the day, the day of Christ's return, uh, I believe he's talking about approaching. Folks, sanctification is, is, is an individual walk with the Lord, isn't it? Your personal time with the Lord, your growth in holiness, it is not only an individual walk with the Lord, however. Sanctification is a community project. It's a community project. Otherwise, God would have saved you and said, all right, go live your life in isolation, right? But he brings people into a church, right? The encouragement of your brothers and sisters, your exhortations, their correction, their reproof, uh, uh, their their, their, um, uh, times when they just need to uh, put wind in your sails here through the truth of God's word is a weapon against faithlessness to continue in the faith. The encouragement of your brothers and sisters. Verse 14. Here's the third weapon. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. He's saying a real decision, a real decision for Christ is one that continues to the end. It continues to the end. 
It does not fall away, never to return. <clears throat> I remember driving back from college. We would take uh, um, there's a couple different routes we could take. I always took um, a route through northern <coughs> Michigan because I would stop down in Saginaw, Michigan, where my wife happened to live before we were married. We visit along the way and then drive back to New York. And there was a particular boring area in northern Michigan. Driving through northern Michigan, for the most part, in many ways, is is not a fun thing. Um, Some places you could probably compare it to, if you've ever been in the Pine Barrens in New Jersey, it's scraggly, scrubby, it's it's kind of like a sandy soil. And there was a portion there, I remember driving through Escanaba, Michigan, where I could not keep my eyes open. I was driving with my friend, Eric Lee. He lived in New Jersey, and I hitched a ride with him, and we split up the drive. And I was driving that portion of it. And the road in that part was actually very straight. It was kind of a lowlands where, where you had um, trees on either side that were, uh, that, that were kind of like in a swampy area. And so, you know, they were dying in dead trees, and there was scrubby brush in there. And it was a very straight route, and it was, and, and it was in the, the, the late afternoon. And I remember that's the closest I've ever been to, 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 to falling asleep at the wheel. And there were some times where I opened my eyes, having had been uh, asleep for a second or two. But I remember I was doing everything in my mind to break me out of that. But it was like I was in a trance. I just couldn't wake up. And, you know, on the roads today, on the highways, you know, the rest areas are safe. You know, free coffee. If you're tired, pull over and sleep. And, and Tom drives a, a truck, and he's got to keep a lot of his hours. He has to have certain hours where he rests, right? Uh, or they can, they can pull him over, and, and, and he can get a ticket for that. Um, tiredness can kill. And that's obvious, right? But you know how it happens? We all know that. You know, fall asleep at the wheel. That that could kill someone and other people. What happens when we don't find our rest in what matters? You're going along merrily. You think, okay, if I just close my eyes here for a couple seconds, everything's going to be okay. And you give in. In that moment, you're in real danger and so is everyone else. That's when spiritually you've got to say, wake up, roll down the windows, blast the radio, blast the air conditioning, wake up, wake up. Because there's a real awareness that needs to happen because sometimes in Christian life, you can just coast. And you know when you start to coast, one of the first things you stop to do, stop doing, besides your individual habits of reading the Bible and talking to the Lord and prayer and fighting sin, you know what you start to do? You don't come Sunday. You don't come next Sunday. It's so easy to drift. Because your flesh doesn't want to be confronted with the Word of God. Why would you, right? And the moment you're in real danger, you need to recognize that. Whoa, this is a state that I'm in. And that's why this verse here in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14 says, For may partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. So important. So important. So, 
Here's the third point. Press on in faith. Don't quit. Keep continuing. Now probably as you've read this passage, and I mentioned a few weeks ago some of the tension to this passage, is that um, <clears throat> we know what the Bible says about eternal security, and it's very clear, isn't it? John 10. No man will be able to pluck them out of, the, out of my hand. Those who are saved are eternally saved because Jesus' sacrifice is eternally sufficient. Amen? Amen. Well, we also know that there are uh, admonitions in here to stay true. To stay true. So does that mean that someone could lose their salvation? And I've thrown out a, 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 really, the, the, really the two takes on this passage uh, is this, that someone could be made a partaker of Christ and then down the road they could lose it. And if that's true, the writer of Hebrews says it's not an in and out, in and out, in and out thing. But I don't believe that's what this passage is teaching. I believe this passage is teaching that those who are eternally secure in Christ are going to hold fast. They're going to hold fast the beginning of their confidence, steadfastly. True, genuine faith in Christ is eternal life. It doesn't have a shelf life of the first 30 days or the first 90 days. It's a life that continues. It's a life that continues. And so, there's, and so what he's saying in verse 6, Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoice and hope firm unto the end, is what he's saying in verse 14, and it shows up in several other passages. We are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast until the end. And here's the key. <clears throat> that verse 6 there, we are, is present tense. It's not telling us how to become Christ's house, but it's telling us that we are if this is true. If we are Christ's house, then this is true. We will hold fast until the end. And verse 14, when it says we are made, and the idea is have become, it's a perfect past tense, which means it's an action that happened at a point in time with continuing results. Continuing results. But notice, then it shifts to present tense. It says, if we hold, the idea is, if we are holding the beginning of our confidence steadfast until the end. This is not how to become a partaker of Christ. Okay? This is, here's what it looks like if you are a partaker of Christ. You have in the past become a follower of Christ, and the true belief continues in it. We're not partakers of Christ because of our, our effort, but faith in another one's effort, right? Christ's effort. God gives life, and the life He gives is eternal life. It doesn't just drop off. It doesn't have a battery that burns out. And what He's telling us is those eternally secure in Christ demonstrate a living faith. Eternal life is in them. So he's presented a test to his readers. Here's a test of genuine faith, a faith that continues to the end. And he's given a contrast to learn from Israel. Israel in Psalm 95, 7 through 11. Israel's faith fell away in the wilderness. And the consequences in that little slot of time was that they didn't enter the promised land. 
But Jesus is more glorious. Jesus is a higher authority. And if that was true for Israel there in that situation, how much more for the believer in Christ? We come to a kingdom, he says in chapter, uh, <clears throat> chapter 12, that is unshakable. We've come to a Christ that is over, far more glorious than Moses' law. So he's given a test. Diligent faith that holds to the end is real faith. Israel shows the opposite. Verse 17, they sinned. Verse 18, they were disobedient. Verse 19, the nature of their disobedience and sin was unbelief. And so listen, as he brings it home here in verse 15. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation. For some, when they heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? He's going to push a little harder into what sin is. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? Verse 19. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Well, let's think about this. God calls Israel out of Egypt. He does those plagues. He sets them free, right? And they, and they leave Egypt with Israel's belongings. There probably wasn't a person among them who was not enthusiastic about the promised land that they were going to enter, right? What happens when they get to the Red Sea? A little rumblings, right? What happens not long after that when they run out of water? A little more rumblings. And it builds, doesn't it? It builds. Enthusiasm uh, uh, was only that, apparently, according to this, because they had unbelief. It was just an enthusiasm. And what the writer of Hebrews is talking about is people whose hearts are cold. People who have no heart for God. People who... There is little evidence of eternal life. People who for some reason, because of the hardness and deceitfulness of sin in their hearts, they cannot be rocked out of their false assurance. They are whistling all the way to hell. This is a heart issue. You see this over and over in verse 8, verse 10, verse 12, verse 13. It's a heart that is hardened. It's a sin of pride. It's a cold heart about it. It's a heart of stone. There is no love for the Word of God. There is uh, no living relationship with God. Prayer is empty. They are dull. They have no godly, eternal life response to God's Word. There's no repentance. They have a hard heart. And if their physical heart chambers stopped beating, they would not wake up in promised rest. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is full of warning signs, isn't it? And warning signs are God's gracious goodness to deter men from the inevitable wrath of God to flee to the safety in Christ. The Old Testament tells us that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The New Testament tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It is not the purpose of God in the creation of man from from even in the very beginning that man should be doomed to hell. 
And that is why passages like this in Hebrews 3 continue to warn us because God loves us. And so when we come to Hebrews 3, verses 17, 7 through 19, we have another one of God's loving warnings to men. Men who may be in the crowd, women who may be in the large crowd, companions of those who are in Christ, but themselves are on a personal course, simple course, to a lost eternity. We know this is going to happen too, don't we? Jesus talks about how in the last days there will be the sheep and the goats. And the goats, he'll say, depart from me. And the sheep, he'll embrace. Jesus gives a parable in Matthew 13 after the parable of the sower, the seeds, the different soils, of how uh, the, the wheat was sown and planted in the fields and then the evil one came and planted tares, weeds among them. Why does he give us these things? He gives us these parables to say, okay, what's my heart like? Okay? Do I receive the word of God and respond to it correctly? Am I the good ground? Am I listened to correction from the word of God? An encouragement of my church family. Will I continue on in faith? Or will it be like that plant that seemed to show life but it didn't have roots? It's gone. One of the difficulties of the wheat and the weeds was that they looked so similar. And in that parable, Jesus says the laborer goes in the field and he asks the the, the, the farmer, what should I do? It's all mixed in. You know what the answer to it is? You can't do anything. God sorts it out in the end. And from the manward perspective, from the person standing behind the pulpit here this morning, I have no no hearts. No no hearts. God knows hearts. And God works in hearts. And so folks, this morning, I'm probably preaching to a very friendly crowd. But I don't know every personal heart. And if there was one among the twelve, Judas, among that small group, who absolutely deceived all those he was with the whole time, except the Lord Jesus, then we'd be foolish to think it could not be true of us, right? In our church. And so God has given us this passion to say, flee from the wrath to come. Stop playing a game. And embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and continue in faith. I wonder if heads would be bowed and eyes closed this morning. At the core of a hard heart is what, when the Word of God confronts the heart, that person says no. In a heart that Christ has formed, battles against the flesh, battles against the old man. And there will be times where we're saying that it always responds perfectly. But their overall pattern is a heart that turns when the Lord of God and His Word confronts it. I wonder this morning if there is anyone who would say, I am done playing the game. 
I've been a companion of people who are in Christ. But I, if I'm honest, I have no living relationship with Christ. And I need Christ. I need the crucified and risen Messiah. Slain for me because of my sin. Resurrected so that I can live through Him. And today, I want to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. I want to be saved. If that's you this morning, would you lift your hand? Folks, I trust then that the majority of you would be people who are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you walking in Him? As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Have you examined your own heart? There are sons and daughters and nephews and nieces and grandparents and uncles and moms and dads who some of you need to really pray for. Whose hearts seem to be very cold to His Word. Have you ever had a conversation with them about that? Would you pray right now that the Lord would open up our opportunity for you to confront people about the reality of their heart before the Lord? God's mercifully given us this warning to test our hearts, to cause us to reflect and ponder His Word. To examine our hearts, to look to the sufficiency of Christ in all of life, to look to Christ as a great reward, to move us from where we are right now to a deeper, stronger faith in His Word and promises, to be rooted and built up in Him. In other words, to keep believing. 